0: Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 883 with Christine Cismondo.
1: It's sort of like what what, uh, sociologist Roy Oldenburg calls a third space or a third place. So it's not work, not home, but it's this third important place in society.
0: Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about tech integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily P&L. And on top of all of this, Margin Edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes. Plus, you can compare actual costs versus theoretical costs. Head to marginedge.com unstoppable to sign up for a free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days, no contract, no setup fee. Plus, you'll get free unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy, a company you've been hearing me reference a lot on the show lately, and that's because they're awesome. And I want to make sure you know about some new e-learning courses they have available right now. Diageo Bar Academy is always free with Tons of resources that can help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So, these courses I'm talking about, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness Essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, you'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant leans more towards the spirits, then make sure you take the interactive course on spirits and food pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate their dining experience and help you improve your check averages. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Now, I know you know about plate IQ, but do you know about PlateIQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. PlateIQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with PlateIQ card. With PlateIQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued Easily, and I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ Card, you can get up to one percent cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com/unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save twenty five percent off implementation. What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that this podcast does need your support. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everyone you know, and you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So today's episode is a little different. Uh, you know, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And, uh, my mission today with this episode is to really inspire you all and to help you see Your restaurant or your bar as more than just a place to feed people, but a place to bring people together and to encourage people to share perspective and to use your restaurant as a place to influence and be a part of the change. And we can do that. The restaurant industry is one of the few places that still exists where people come together just to be together and to to talk and to share perspective and opinion. Uh, And I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of how significant just bumping up against each other is for our own mental health, for the health of our communities. And we can be that place. Uh, So I don't know. I'm really excited for this conversation, I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So basically who I'm speaking with today is Christine Sismondo and Christine is the author of America Walks Into a Bar. And I discovered this book through interviewing said Moses. Actually, it was in his book, Pouring With Heart, that he quotes Christine a few times regarding the significance that bars and taverns had in the formation of society, especially in America. Uh, and it's kind of my argument that, uh, well, you, you hear this happening right now where the The direction that the hospitality industry and in, in all commerce and all business in general is is being more conscious, capitalistic. You know, like conscious capitalism. Uh, what is the purpose behind your restaurant or your business? What is your why? What is the change you're trying to make in the world? And in these people that have overarching missions that pull on the strings of hearts, are the ones that are really kind of catching foothold and. Uh, the, 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 these are the places that your patrons want to go and be a part of and support. Uh, so that's the argument is that we're moving in this direction, but it's, it's my argument that we've always been this, that the hospitality industry has been lobbying for social change as far back as it exists. And we're kind of going into the history of the hospitality industry, specifically bars and taverns and diving into the role they've played since the 17th century Uh, and even beyond that with the Romans. So it's a really kind of fun conversation, and I hope you leave today's episode feeling very inspired and motivated to make an impact in your community. So with no further ado, here she is, Christine Sismondo. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, author of America Walks Into a Bar, Christine Sismondo. Christine, are you feeling unstoppable today? (laughs)
1: <laughs> absolutely despite uh having a slight moderna hangover i feel oh. great
0: <laughs> well thank you for making time with us and i'm really excited for today's conversation i first discovered you in said moses' book uh pouring with heart where he kind of references your book in the history of bars and the the role bars played in society uh which i'm a increasingly becoming a history buff i just love learning about our past i I realized the more I learn about our history, the more it kind of gives us a, a, I don't know, direction for where to go in the future, right? If you want to know where to go in the future, study your past, and there will be a lot of uh, questions answered, in my opinion. And it was it's just amazing to know how much influence the hospitality industry. I'm going to generalize and say the hospitality industry, bars, restaurants, the influence it's had on politics and informing social norms and just transforming society. As long as, you know, American society has been a thing. It's, it's really surprising. So what I'm hoping to get out of today's conversation is kind of like a fast forward version of your book, uh, the role that bars and uh, taverns have played informing society. And by the end of today's conversation, I hope our listeners recognize the influence they have as tavern owners as restaurant owners in how much influence they have to form and shape society going into the future so that's kind of my hope from today's conversation uh, before we get into it let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us christine um i
1: should probably explain it later but i'll just explain i'll just say it, it yeah. you know, no matter what your problem is um, no matter how hard you think it's gonna to be to solve, just go to the bar, somebody there will help you solve it.
0: Mm, get into that. Dive, pull back the layers. Why is that your your choice of quote today?
1: So um mantra. when I used to work at a local tavern, I was always blown away by you know how often somebody's problem seemingly absolutely um, overwhelming and beyond anything that they could do. They go into the bar and they just start talking about it casually. And someone would be like, "Oh, my neighbor is moving out. You, you know, you should check out their apartment." Or, you know, I know somebody is hiring for that thing or whatever the thing would be. There would often just be this organic solution that would come out of nowhere. And I, I mean, when looking back on it it's not as surprising as I thought it was. I mean, you got like 25 people from diverse areas hanging out in a space. Somebody can help somebody out.
0: Yeah. Even if it's just a place to go to talk about what's going on in your life, right? Just a, a place to get it yeah. out, to, to whatever is internalized to, to put it to words and to share it with people and to have conversation around it and people to, to, to offer feedback and perspective. It's a place to go to, to, to get what you need as a human being community in, in a place to feel like you're a part of something greater, right? What are your thoughts as I say Uh, that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one thing that, um, really got me interested in working in this field and to, to write in writing about, um, the history of these sort of spaces because, um, and I think it's right to include bars and restaurants kind of in the same category, especially when you're looking at history, because, You know in the early days so many of the bars that we're talking about would have been called taverns and they also would have had food and some of them would have had places to sleep but for me it was you know working in a a local kind of place that became my local and i would drink there even after i stopped working there um and uh you know it was this sort of amazing little community center that nobody had funded or set up or you know designated and I would remember, uh, you know, people, there was one guy who he had, you know, become unemployed and he'd been a regular for a long time. And you just have the the chef come out and say, oh, I made a steak by mistake. Would you like to eat it? You know, that kind of thing, this really informal sort of helping each other out thing that people would do. And that's what got me interested in finding out, whether or not this was just like I was working in this unicorn space that was wonderful or whether there was a history of this in the past. And it turns out, of course, there's a really long history. So
0: what do you mean by a history of this? I I know you just kind of explained it, but really distill that for us a history of this.
1: So I guess the the reason that I would use this and, and, you know, uh, is I'm collapsing a lot of things in there together because on the one hand, I'm interested in, uh, spaces, public drinking spaces, as and dining as well, as places where communities can kind of informally come together, get to know each other, help each other out, um, sort of like what, what uh, sociologist Roy Oldenburg calls a, a third space or a mm-hmm. third place. Um, and then, it, so it's not work, not home, but it's this third important place in society. The second part that I'm interested in, in general, when it comes to bars, is the power it has to kind of transform politics and yes. to make progressive change in other ways. So, it, and I don't think the two are unrelated, but um, it's more than one thing that I'm interested in.
0: Well, one of the things I'm really interested in, in this idea of, um, you know, there, there's there's talk right now of one of the trends that's happening in restaurant business is that, uh, there's conscious capitalism the, to understand your why and to have a higher purpose other than just serving food and drink. And, uh, w- when I think of that, like I think of what's been, what you document in your book of just a history of this, this isn't, a, this isn't a new trend, you know, like this idea of like like bars and restaurants were built on this idea of bringing people together to provide safe space, a third space and to. I mean, it was like like you point out in the book. There were political networks centered around this this industry. Uh, we've been influencing society as long as we've existed. This isn't a new thing, and it's so cool to see the history of this. I think when you're when it's happening in the moment. It's like a fish in water. It doesn't see what's happening. It doesn't realize it's surrounded by change and influence. But when you take a step back and you, and you look at our history, that's all we've ever done is influence and change in social inclusion and mostly like social advancements too is a big part of this and political, right? So um, I think you kind of gave us a little bit more of your background, but do you have anything else you want to sh- share with us as far as who you are and what makes you, um, you know, somebody we should be listening to going forward in today's conversation.
1: Um, So I've been writing about kind of bars, drinks, uh, food, that kind of sphere for a really long time. Um, And I kind of dabbled in the history and um, I've done like histories of cocktails. And then uh, I became it became clear to me. I had been an English major. Initially, I did a master's in English and um, it became clear to me that I didn't just want to be a writer. I wanted to write about history. So I went back and I did um, a PhD at university to um, kind of really understand North American history a little bit more deeply. And I did some work on gay bars in Toronto in the 1950s, um, which kind of connects. And I'm also, uh, I, but really like, I think prohibition is probably my main field of expertise at this point. So I've kind of spent a lot of the last um 20 years of my life dealing with something to do with either bars or the history of bars or alcohol.
0: So let's just get into it then let's go all the way back to where um, the, there's history of bars. Where, where the, does the history of bars in taverns first start to emerge in our, our storyline of as humans?
1: So I think that this is a really interesting thing in that the the restaurant as like a, a space where people go to eat with strangers and you know have meals cooked up by chefs and that this, the food is the center of the meal, uh, the center of the uh, experience, is relatively modern and quite new. Whereas bars and taverns are really old. You know, if you go to Pompeii and you wander around through there, you realize it's about every third or fourth structure seems to be a tavern of one sort or another. Um, so I, I mean, I think resembling the institution that we have now, I would be tempted to say the beginning is somewhere around Roman times. um, And that it was used very much as a way for people to travel because you can only go so far on foot, you know, um, you know, or by horse. And so you need spaces every once in a while, rest stops, just like we have on the highways now and they were taverns that were used in order for people to sort of make longer treks. They were an important part of infrastructure for traveling um, at the time. And then I think that they were that way all the way through to American colonial days.
0: Yeah. And I think I remember from the book, and I'm going to hold the book up to the camera if you guys are watching the video version of this America walks into the bar or a bar. Um, it was every 15 miles, right? That was kind of the distance and that became like a unit of measure. Like, like you'd measure distance based off of how far the bars were apart.
1: Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's,
0: I think that's almost, it's kind of comical, but just, um, I don't know. It's also fun to know. It's fun. little fact.
1: Yeah. And you know, you did, you measure distance in terms of bars, like also in the colonial days. I think that's, you know, can I make it to the next route? It's only this far too you know, Samuel's tavern or
0: whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I, th- I think it's worth mentioning now. It's always been a passion of mine um, or an interest of mine in- increasingly more to figure out why we are the way we are as humans. Like what is this hospitality gene we have? Uh, where did it start on like an anthropological, like on on, a, on an anthropological, what? That's not a word. Anthropolic. That's is that the word I'm looking for. Anthropolic level. I,
1: anthropological. <laughs> anthropological. Uh, thank yeah. you. I knew there
0: was a correct thing. Anthropo, anthropological level. uh Why did we evolve to be this way? Why is camaraderie? Why is warmth, generosity and just neighborliness such a, a, an important part of our, our trait? Like where did that stem from? Um So I would love to go deeper into that. If you know, if you have any leads for me, feel free to let me know if anybody's listening to this, who, who, who who knows of somebody who's taken it beyond or before the Roman times, Uh, to see how we got to even that point i just want to put that feeler out there because i'd love to dive even further back into our history but have you
1: read i'm I'm gonna forget the name of the author and it's just on the i don't have it right behind me but it's the one uh, that's been released within the last 12 months and it's how we stumbled our way into civilization is the subtitle oh no i mean i've read
0: sapiens which is um basically like a, a history of sapiens and like how we got to where we were, but I I'm really interested in the, the elements of just hospitality and, and warmth and generosity and uh, just neighborliness. Like, why is that a part of who we are and what does the, how does that manifest in different cultures? You know,
1: I'll, um, I'll definitely get the title of that book to you yeah. and as a resource for anyone who's interested in it. But I mean, I think that, for, for me, I think what's interesting about this, there has been a fair bit of work done on it, largely through people who have studied the origins of beer, you know, that the fermentation of grain and the storage of grain in that particular way um, kind of accidentally led to, to groups possibly being even stronger working together because of the way that beer kind of broke down some social barriers, yeah. so I feel like there is a camp of people who think that alcohol is really a part of our evolutionary. Well, story. yeah,
0: absolutely. And the more we learn, the more that 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 camp of people is growing. There's a conversation: what came first, bread or beer? You know, what right. was it that started the agricultural revolution ten thousand years ago? And a lot of people are saying, no, it was beer, and that that kind of hitches its bandwagon to this mentality or or the theory of the drunken monkey or the, the, or was it the, not the drunken monkey, but the, the stoned monkey. There's like a theory that one of the reasons why our brains advanced the way that it did is because using substance, whether it was smoking or eating mushrooms or smoking grass or whatever the heck it was or drinking alcohol, like it, it, it pushed our cognitive, Uh, just ability, I guess. Uh, And that was one of the things that accelerated uh, society or humanity as we know it today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today, but this is, it just goes even deeper to what we, and we're kind of picking up the conversation from the Roman times and how from there on how bars and taverns and these gathering spots influence society. So take it from that point. Yeah, I, I,
1: and I think, um, Uh, One thing that I would like to add about this is that it's really recent that we think of of alcohol as only recreational. So if you have these tavern keepers, they're more they're providing more than just a recreational product. They're providing something that um, could be considered a medicine that could be considered food, um, depending on the particular era. You know, they're in colonial America. What we had was we had beer considered to be like kind of a panacea a cure-all that could be like a food. It was good for you. Um, and of course, that, that's an extension of there not having been safe drinking water in industrial Europe. So, so you have the tavern keeper for a lot of different reasons, but also that one, a much more important um, role than is generally kind of considered in history. You know, if you look back and you find out what they were, they were one of the most important people in town. And for me, the thing that's most exciting and I think the reason why they were so important and explosive networks in colonial America really has to do with the fact that if you think about the way that news travels, you know, this is before there's really um, any newspaper delivery or things along those lines. The tavern keeper is also the person who tells you what happened in the town over the last week and what happened in the town two towns over. Because there's these people traveling through and sharing information and constantly discussing the news of the day. And um, so these are really, to me, the Internet of the day. Yeah. Granted, yeah not not fast not fast speed right um but that this was like where information was shared and where information was discussed and if you think about how important that was in colonial america to have that network established it's no wonder that they were really influential
0: yeah i mean it kind of reminds me of a saying i've heard uh in the past interviewing people i can't remember who said it but to this date the best social platform for you to market your business is your restaurant floor four walls marketing you're that's the best social platform and it's been a social platform as far. It's a place for people to come together and get it's, it's modern day. It was old time social media. You know, it's where you would go to get your newspaper, to have conversation, to, to get caught up in politics and what was going on. It, it was, that's what they did. Um, this, mm-hmm. you, you dive into all this in the book, but why go back to, um, when, when settlers were first coming to America, like, what was that picture like? Paint that picture for us.
1: Um, I, I think that the answer that you're setting up for me is about, you know, how important it was to get the establishment of, of like beer, first of all, being brewed. Um, and because it was really key that um, you have a source of beer immediately, quickly.
0: I think it's obvious why, but maybe it's not so obvious. So why was that so important?
1: Just because it was such a staple in Europe where there was no access to say clean water, you had to ferment everything first. And so they, the, the settlers would have had no idea that there was actually much more, you know, there was an ample supply of fresh, clean water in North America, but they wouldn't have realized that. And plus, at that point, it was such a central component of their culture, of their eating culture, their medicinal culture, their drinking culture. So you would have wanted to get beer going right away as soon as you got here. In fact, there is, um, you know, this idea that the Mayflower landed in a different place because they ran out of beer um, and they wanted to make sure they had enough for the trip back. So um, there, there's, it's a, playing an important role. And then once you get this sort of space where you're serving the beer well, you don't really have time to build all of the other things you need immediately. You know, you're just eking out your existence and trying to get going. So then the tavern or the place where you get beer, because everyone's going there all the time anyway, becomes a de facto everything else that you need in society. A de facto place to, you know, not just discuss politics, but to settle legal disputes or to plan meetings for what was going to happen with the town. All of the business that you had to do, was going to take place in this one spot, which was the warmest place in town and the busiest place in town. And plus had all the beer.
0: Yeah. And wasn't it even like a, it was the, what the platform that the American uh, postal uh, service was built on too. Wasn't the first postal service all in bars.
1: Absolutely. Which is another example of the great communication that was going on between the spaces. I mean, if the letters are all being dropped off there, letters are how you get 90% of your news at that time.
0: Yeah. Describe, we're, we're describing the tavern right now, but what about the tavern owner? Who was the tavern owner going back as far back as the 17th century?
1: Um, yeah, there are different, a couple of different things going on. One of them is that there are quite a few women tavern owners in some early colonial days. Largely this would have had to do with the fact that um, if you have a widow You don't want her to be a burden on society. So um, it was easy to set a woman who had lost her husband up as a tavern keeper. Um, And so that way that she could actually contribute as opposed to, you know, needing people to look after her. So that's part of it. And then in addition, there were plenty of men who um, would have been involved in who would have been tavern keepers as well it was a good living for a lot of people in colonial days. And it was also a position of prominence and, and uh, you would be a very respected member of society if you were a tavern keeper for the large part.
0: Yeah. And that's where I was, I was kind of going with asking that question. And I think it's important to surface that because if you fast forward to, to current times, I think there's almost like a, almost like a disrespect associated with the the role as a restaurant owner, like you're less than, you know, and I think it's important to realize that, it, you know, th- this industry has had such an integral part in forming society in as far back as we started, we've been such influencers, you know, uh, and this whole industry was almost kind of centered around this idea of influence, bringing people together so you could, you know, influence the, the communities. What's going through your mind as I share this?
1: Well, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, we, we sort of use the word puritanical, but there would have been no negative associations around the person supplying the beer at the time, you know, that would have been like a positive thing. And I think when people look at it through a modern lens, part of the reason that um, that that role has been diminished um, over the years has something to do with our increasingly difficult sort of um, complex dealings with alcohol. You know, Puritans would not have supported like absolute public drunkenness or anything like that, but they would have started the day with a, a little glass of ale. So, um, you know, at the time, it wouldn't necessarily have felt like a disrespectful role, whereas, you know, we, you know, things got changed a lot in the you know 1900s and, and 1800s in terms of how people think of alcohol.
0: Yeah. Uh, so get into the, a little bit more detail of, of what in your opinion has changed over time for the, the role of a restaurant owner or a tavern owner. Um, why is that a less significant role today in your opinion versus when it was then?
1: Well, it, I mean, not to say that restaurant and bar owners don't sometimes and take on more than one role, but um, you know, you, you're not expected as a bar owner to be a communication center or to help um, settle disputes amongst like two townspeople or um, preside over banking transactions, you know, financial transactions would have happened in taverns or, or to be, there were even um, lectures, like there were agricultural lectures that would have happened in taverns. You know, we don't necessarily expect that, a tavern owner is going to be responsible for education, finance, communication, et cetera, in their community.
0: Yeah. So basically as time has marched on, we have increasingly gotten further away from our dependence on a physical space in community to be a one-stop shop as society evolved.
1: Yeah. And we've stripped some roles away from these people, you know, to to a certain degree, some of them make sense because you know we have banks and we have courts and it wouldn't really be appropriate for the tavern keeper to continue to doing role, to do roles like that. But um, sorry to perform roles like that. But um, to some degree, we have stripped. I think some of the sort of valuable valuable community leadership.
0: Yeah. Um, it's it's almost i can't help but have this image in my mind right now this idea of, of if you look if you, if you think of a pendulum swinging right now and if what we're describing is the pendulum that swung to the far left where we needed a spot a, a central communal spot to serve society we swung far right where we are so independent now from community and uh, family and we don't need each other like we used to uh, but mm-hmm. i think what we're starting to realize is we've gotten so independent uh, that we're starting to realize that there is now especially with after covid people working remotely we we have no reason to bump up against each other anymore and i think what's starting to happen is the pendulum is going to swing back where we do need these central communal spaces because we have no other opportunity to bump up against each other you know like we, we don't bump up against each other like we used to like we just don't need to go to work we don't need to we can have food delivered to our house. You know, like we don't need, we don't need each other anymore, but what we, what we don't realize is that we fucking need each other. We, we do need yeah. each other and like it's a part of our DNA and, and how we're hardwired and coded. And we're just starting to realize, Holy crap, like this isn't the best solution where we don't need to go to the spot, a one spot stop or, or a one stop sh- shop spot to bump up against each other. What's going through your mind as I share this?
1: Well, I guess I was thinking of a couple of different things. And one is, you know, as we sort of stripped the responsibilities away from bar owners, I mean, one of the things is that there's an emphasis on bars and restaurants just being like about making money and, you know, do you turn your profits? And, and the, what's one of the first things that restaurant and bar owners pe- talk about, which is, you know, markup or, or something along those lines, right? And what's the markup? And, and it's because it's a very difficult business to succeed in. So everyone understands why you need to pay very close attention to the money, um but uh at the same time you know we see we're seeing kind of like a a little bit of reform on capitalism when it comes to things like b corps and things like that that are being established at this point what is, a b is corp that, for
0: people who don't know what that is
1: um you know uh, you might know better than i do i i my understanding of are, it
0: is is basically that uh it's a Corporations centered around a social cause that, that, that you're hot, hi- you're held to a higher standard to serve that purpose, your mission, whatever it might be. And it's in writing, like you're held to like almost a contract to serve that purpose.
1: I, th- I like that working definition. Cause I'm, we have a fewer, we have fewer B Corps in Canada and it's not something I'm really comfortable um, saying that I have a, a full understanding of. But what I, what I know is that, um, you know, you have to make money to stay alive in any of these things. But I think a lot of them, B Corps are, are sort of aiming towards also being sustainable for a long term and um, deprioritizing growth um, as opposed and prioritizing sustainability, health, health of employees and things along those lines. And so I think that we're starting to see that to some degree in the restaurant industry, too, which is that, of course, you have to make a living. Of course, you have to profit. There's nothing wrong with that but you also have to look at something else as well. Um, Just given what we're going through right now in the world, which, you know, somebody said to me the other day, the world's playing for keeps with us right now, um, that, you know, we're going to have to change some things. And the second thing that I thought of while you were talking about that was just that I do think that we can see evidence of communication breakdowns in communities. And I think that, you know, the... um, the internet is a, you know, an absolutely necessity, like, necess- it's, I can't live a day without the internet. I don't know who could. Um, I find it, um, it's very important. It's a wonderful wealth of information and resource, but it's not enough that we do need face-to-face communications with people. We do need um, a different type of conversation because you, you know, the internet kind of I think this is, you know, it we I think we all understand this it breeds a kind of a social contempt, you know, where people go on YouTube and just say you suck and your opinion sucks and you're an idiot. And I mean, you go to the bar, you don't really say that to people. Yeah. Like I mean,
0: this is a this is a great place to take our first break to thank our sponsors and I want to come right back to kind of dive deeper in this direction you're going. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a software platform for restaurant people by restaurant people. To be successful in the modern age, you need to be efficient by streamlining your processes and creating automation. Simply put, Margin Edge means data streamlined and insights automated. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about the integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily P&L. On top of all of this Margin Edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes plus you can compare actual cost versus theoretical cost. Find out why over 3,100 Restaurants are thrilled to be using Margin Edge. Head to marginedge.com/slash unstoppable to sign up for your free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days. There's no contract, there's no setup fee, plus you get free, unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. One more time, marginedge.com slash unstoppable all right we are back and we just started talking about the divisiveness of the internet and while we're more connected than ever before we're also more disconnected than ever before and why face to face is still so important so get it pick up that train of thought if you can
1: i think that there are a few things that a place like a bar it's not just a bar it could be a restaurant a coffee shop barber shops are often included in this one one of the things that's great about these spaces is that um, they have the chance not to be bubbles, you know. Because you're, you know, the, the, I'll go back to the bar that um, I worked at, which closed in the pandemic after you know being open for 25 years. So it was quite sad to see it go. This kind of anchor of a community, but we would, you know, have a, a lawyer, a taxi cab driver, a shorter to cook, a waiter you know, all sitting next to each other at the bar. And what was remarkable about it is that they could have conversations and usually people didn't pull rank and say, well, I'm a lawyer, so my opinion's worth more. It's, it, it's a kind of a leveling space where you talk to people that you wouldn't meet in other moments in your life. You know, you're not going to meet them on the bus um, and you're not going to meet them in your office space. So I think it's a chance to get out of a bubble.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, so what you're talking, what you're referencing. I've, I believe in saying bubble one, just social, political, like classes, and two, online, especially echo chambers, where you you're, the. the Google and Facebook and all these platforms have gotten really good at selling. And what they're trying to do is predict you and understand you so they can sell to you easier or more easily. Uh, They're they're segmenting you essentially. So now your experience online is you're in, you're a a list, you're a number in a list of people who are like you and they want to (coughs) surround you with more people like you so you can become more predictable. And it's kind of scary to think about that. And what ends up happening is you only get one perspective online, the people like you who share your beliefs. And this kind of reminds me of Simon Sinek in his book, Leaders Eat Last. He talked, are you familiar with the book? No. You're not? So he references what was going on in uh, D.C. and Washington. I can't remember. I want to say at the mid 20th century where uh, air travel became more prevalent. And if you held office, If you were a senator or whatever before that time, you would go to DC and you would live in DC and you would raise your children. Uh, if you're a Democrat alongside Republicans and you're forced to get the other perspective, you were forced to, to go out to dinner and have friends who had different opinions. And once people started moving away from DC and flying in whenever they had meetings, they were, they were more isolated. The same thing's happening online where we don't get the perspective of people. So it's almost like going back to like, yeah. like 1600 where we, we, we were so isolated in where we live that we would come together in the community center to, to get bump up against each other. We almost need that. Like we're almost just as isolated today because we don't get that perspective. So there's increasingly more significance and importance for us to go to one spot face to face to hear perspective. What's going through your mind.
1: Well, I, I mean, I just think of all the people that you meet who are like, how did that person win the election? I don't know a single person who voted for them, right? You know, and it's like, well, that's the problem right there. <laughs> yeah, right?
0: exactly. Yeah. So, and then
1: in in addition, you know, in academia, for example, I don't work in academia, um, but in academia, you know, we've had this, we had decades where people were siloed off and they were just doing their own discipline and working really, really hard on like, you know, history from 1642 to 1648, That was all they do. And they'd never talk to another person. And then they'd find out that there's someone from engineering who has something that they can give to help them understand their project differently. And, you know, that kind of building on with with sort of random encounters is the kind of thing you can get in a space like this. So the bubble is not only about um learning to agree and to learn from other people it's also about learning t- to learn from other people.
0: Yeah. Uh I kind of want to pivot the conversation right now and talk about the history of social influence this industry's had. Um because I just want to kind of give us a pat on the back for being at the leading edge of social change going as far back as we can see. So what are some of those examples of the influence going chronologically that this industry's had on social improvement, social change?
1: Well, I think that, um, the number one thing that you can um, see that is related to bars in terms of progressive social change probably is the American revolution in that, um, this was, these were spaces where people got together. And I think one thing that's very powerful to me and you sort of see this with like Hamilton, there's a scene that's in a bar, but this was a space, um, the taverns were spaces where uh, the Thomas Paine was read aloud and people, you know, actually learned, um, you know, they, they it it was like a propaganda in a sense, but it was good propaganda (laughs) that people were reading and being inspired to have a dream for a better kind of society in these spaces. And that was wildly successful. And I don't want to say that it couldn't have happened without taverns, but it's hard to see how it could have since they played such an important role in changing people's minds.
0: Yeah. Uh, Can you think of any other social dynamic, like, I don't know, growth that came from the influence bars or restaurants had?
1: I mean, all through the late 1800s with the massive waves of immigration, these were really important places for immigrants, not just to get practical things like the thing I was talking about in the beginning, no matter what your problem is, go to the bar, it'll get solved there. It's not just a place where people you know, figured out how to get housing and work, but that was important. It was also where people, um, you know, taught each other, you know, how uh, to uh, fight for their rights when it came to labor injustices or to tackle their landlords when it came to exploitative practices that were being imposed on immigrants. So this is very much a pillar of um, most newcomers in um, America for a, a certain period of time. And I think less so now.
0: Yeah, I think. Um, so you're pointing out again that it was a place to gather information to learn. Um, a lot of people didn't read in the 18th, you know, 19th century. And if you had a, if you got information, it was through conversation. It was through talking to people. And this was a place to go gather that information, especially if you were an immigrant, you know. So uh, not only were was this a place for information, but it was also a place where immigrants would probably be able to get a job. We like this industry, I feel like uh, accepts people first. We're probably the most accepting industry out there because we're an industry of misfits and people who don't march to the status quo, who challenge the status quo, who don't fit into the mold. So we end up in the restaurant industry. So I feel like like the, the, the restaurant and hospitality industry is almost a like gateway into inclusiveness where like, Hey, if, if you can't get accepted anywhere else, like we'll have a spot for you. There's work here. What's going through your mind?
1: Well, I mean, and you see uh, there, you know, the the way that kitchens operate in particular, you see that um, there's it's very much um, a, a place where you can find resources for people who are newcomers to any new country, and it's a little less so in the front of house, as we all know that there's a divide um, there. But that wasn't always true. There were a lot of European waiters um, in the around the turn of the century, the turn of last century, um, and that. Uh, that you would have seen that it was an easy sort of entry point into um, employment in America at that time as well.
0: Yeah. So not only was it a place to bring together cultural divide, but also social uh, beliefs. So um, even, you know, with, I think it was in Manhattan. I think I remember reading in the book that uh, in, in New York city, it was one of the first places in the country where people, uh, blacks could sit down at a table, uh, with whites, you know, it was one of the first places where like, if you're a free or even for your, if you were a slave or a free slave, you're still welcomed in until they put an end to that at some point. But do you know the reference I'm making of,
1: I, you know, I do, I do, um, real, I'm not, uh, very clear on exactly where the uh, integration rules were firm and where they were, you know, where mixed was prohibited, um, in the Northeast, but, um, one example that kind of relates to this that I think is very profound is uh, the Atlanta race riots um, in the early 20th century. There, there was sort of in Atlanta, there was a burgeoning um, black middle-class and um, very, the, the uh, there were a lot of people who were quite fearful of it. There was a lot of anxiety around um, a burgeoning black middle-class and Um, It was associated with a a group of bars, and um, it's a kind of um, a story of, like, fake news and yellow journalism and this mix of things that you could very much imagine happening today, um, which wound up sort of turning the public against these bars where um, there was, you know, these these new businesses that were um, being run by black Americans, one of the first places that they could own an actual business would be a saloon or a tavern in Atlanta. And I mean, it's a horrible story in that their businesses were actually, you know, burned down during the riots. Um, But you can see in this, 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 um, this terrible story of destruction that there was something that was happening in those bars that was helping a community form and get stronger and become more independent and be entrepreneurs and independent business people um, that was shut down.
0: Mm-hmm. What is it that you think is unique about the bar or tavern or just hospitality industry in general that leads the edge when it comes to social inclusion? Why? Why? Why does it always, whenever there's social improvement, it always seems to be birthed out of like the hospitality industry. Our industry is so um, just willing to accept. What do you think is going on there?
1: I mean, I think that it's hard not to discount the role of alcohol in that same original way that we were talking about, about breaking down um, barriers when people are trying to work together and you know, you are reaching a hand across a bar or across a table but you know, the food is so important as well because breaking bread together is of course, you know, one of the most important things that keeps us connected and whole as communities. So I think between the two that you near know, between the three things, you know, you've got these strangers who are coming and, and bring these things to you and so that you can sit with your friends and enjoy your time. And before long you know, people aren't strangers anymore. And I yeah. think that that's a brilliant thing that happens over food and drink and conviviality and, you know, being, sh- sharing around a common space like a bar or like a big table at a banquet or something along those lines. But it's really, I, I mean, it's built in. You know, I was, there's so many community spaces out there, but so few of them are devoted to pure social, you um, you know, social interaction, you yeah. know, if you, I, I don't want to, I'm not, um, you know, slogging the church or anything like that. But when you go to the church, that's a community interaction that you're having, but you're there also to worship. Mm-hmm. If you go to the gym, you're there also to work out. You know, if you go for yoga, you know, all these things have a secondary purpose. With a bar or restaurant, you're really just there to be with people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah the, the thought that's going through my mind and did I cut you short? You can finish your thoughts. No, I'm okay. sorry.
1: I was droning on. No,
0: it, it kind of reminds me or just the words that come to my mind are just it breaks down social biases in stereotypes. You're forced to to experience different people for what they are in front of you. And you you begin to realize that these people are a lot like me. So you, you look at what this means like today, like what, what, what what we're experiencing today. And you think of the restaurant industry is probably one of the, even as simple as like tattoos, you know, like, like we are one of the first industries to let people express themselves through tattoos and clothing. And Uh um, even beyond that, just um, I think you point out in like the 20th century, how the hotel or the bar industry was one of the first to accept openly gay people, you know, and champion these people. And, and it was a place for these people to express themselves and have place. Um, and today I also think it goes beyond, beyond that to like transgenders. And no matter who you are, like the big conversation in the the restaurant industry today is no matter who you are, what your belief is, what your, your values are, there's social inclusion here and we have a home for you. We, and maybe it's because people don't want to do this work. If I'm being completely honest, that we are forced to accept people with different perspective, maybe that's a part of it too. Like we we are a place that where no matter who you are, we need you and you need us, you know? And it's just kind of like and we we are like the we're I don't know, we're like we're the the gateway into accepted. Like we 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 are the first to accept you and we open the doors for everyone else. What's do you agree or disagree with that?
1: Uh, I think that, you know, it's a complicated history when it comes to uh, gay and lesbian bars, because there's like some inclusivity and then there's some not inclusivity because it was all also about who could afford to spend the money. And this has always been one of the tensions about bars being um, an important social space is that it's also a commercial space. And so it's it's. um, while it's inclusive, it can be not so inclusive and it can be sort of exploitative. And I think when it comes to um, gay and lesbian bars and the history there, then you definitely see that it's kind of fraught. But there's one thing you can't deny, which is that in certain spaces, it, the, the bars were really a sanctuary for many people who felt that they had to hide their identity and all of a sudden they could go into a space in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s to some degree but even later than that for sure where people felt like they could um, take the mask off and behave uh, more in keep more in um, in keeping with their the way they felt in, in the interior their, and yeah, less-
0: their, their identity you know yeah, yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Um, so you, you mentioned that you're truly like an expert on the prohibition area or that that time, that era. Um, what's unique about that era versus what we've been discussing that's also tied to this idea of inclusivity and change?
1: Um, I think what, what interests me about prohibition so much is that we sort of understand it as this um, tale of uh, women p- kind of putting the clamp down on bars. And um, if you look closely, you'll see that it's really a story about money and race and um, big business kind of coming up more, more so than any kind of socially progressive movement. So what, what, um, what happened with prohibition is that alcohol wasn't really outlawed, as most people know. But the saloon was. It was really um, a movement that was about uh, ending the saloon and closing the saloon. And because the the, uh, W, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, didn't really have a lot of power when it came to closing, you know, down any bars or changing any laws. But the Anti-Saloon League was extraordinarily successful. They had a lot of resources. They had a lot of willpower. And they're the people who wound up kind of bringing prohibition in. And what we saw happen in the 1920s is that wealthy people still had the ability to drink and without consequences for the large part, they didn't wind up going to jail. But um, that ethnic minorities, the people who did the bootlegging, the people who did the smuggling and the people who ran the speakeasies, they were often penalized. So there are a lot of different layers around this, but... One of the big things is, of course, it anticipates and gives a precedent for the modern drug laws that we see um, being discriminatory for people today.
0: So go really dissect that and like impl- in plain like language, not that you're Sorry. talking around it or anything like that. But like, what do you think the intention of prohibition was?
1: I think the intention of prohibition was to disempower ethnic minorities and religious minorities.
0: Okay. And... <laughs> So, I mean, what makes you say that? Like, get into the details of why you think that is. And it wasn't just about people trying to fight against, you know, over drunkenness.
1: Um. So I do think that it came from some, I the origins of prohibition to me are about fighting over drunkenness in that women didn't want um, their family income to be reduced um, and they didn't want to live in poverty and that people really were drinking an awful lot in the 1840s and a lot of details of how much
0: people drink. There's some really like staggering numbers you share, like gallons of alcohol.
1: It's shocking. You know, there was an alcohol problem, but by the time that it turns into the modern prohibition um, movement, people were actually drinking far less than they had been before. Alcohol was really being curbed already just from this sort of progressive movement, actually putting an end to licensed drinking spaces, be they restaurants or bars. That was largely established by the Anti-Saloon League who was very much in league with the, the Ku Klux Klan. And um, an awful lot of the movement came from pressure um, from it was supported by businesses who did not want to have absenteeism and drunken employees and workplace accidents. So there was like that component of it. But um, if you even look at the way prohibition was enforced, especially in kind of the Midwest and rural areas in the South, you'll see that it was you know, a very, very firm overlap between the KKK and the People who were raiding the actual um, speakeasies and, and bootlegging operations.
0: So, so do you? It, I mean, do you think that at this time that the the powers that be recognize the the influence that these bars had, and what happens when people get together and share thought, and how they can uprise and overpower? Do you think that? it mean. It just kind of reinforces the whole argument that this, that, that bar the hospitality and tavern industry is just like this place for social change and upheaval.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's no question in my mind that there were a lot of saloons that were involved in labor movement. um, There were a lot are important in terms of labor movements in that era. The saloon was an important organizing space for anarchists, um, you know, at the time. And, uh, and if you read, the one thing that I was blown away by when I learned all of this was that if you read what the anarchists were saying, it's almost identical to some of the stuff Thomas Paine was saying, like, it doesn't really, it's not that different. They had, a, um, what were the you know,
0: similarities? Had, what were they saying?
1: Well, they were really just saying that the basically rights of man kind of stuff that they had the, the right to, um, that, that, uh, the immigrants should have more rights when it came to, gathering. Um, sorry,
0: like gathering,
1: Yeah, absolutely. But also economic independence and, you know, the freedom of speech and, you know, the um, ability to uh, to have a like a pursuit of happiness really is the main thing that they shouldn't be stuck in a system. At the time, the system was, you know, very difficult during the Gilded Age to get ahead unless you were born into it. And so it was really just about, you know, um, the ability to make your own way.
0: Yeah. Uh, So it's almost so it's from if I understand correctly, the argument you're making is that the the initial efforts of prohibition were coming from a good place. Um, However, the powers that be at the time saw this as maybe a Trojan horse, a way to get uh, a shield, a cover to move in and to get more control over money and also in isolating these uh, immigrant groups to not have as much power.
1: Absolutely. I think that you see the bar as a place where immigrants are making grounds, they're making gains. You see um, the the saloon as a place where um, labor unions are sort of gaining grounds and they're getting together and they're organizing in these spaces. And there's this one elegant solution to stopping all of this, and that is to close down the bar.
0: But even
1: more more elegant, keep keep alcohol essentially legal, you know, because
0: possession is still legal. So, uh, I mean, you, you kind of, this reminds me of the war against drugs, you know, and like the 70s, is it the seventies and eighties. Is that like where yeah. it was where now that we know and a lot of people argue that it really wasn't a war against drugs. It was a war against minorities. Even then. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's crazy how history repeats, right? Which is why I thought this would be such a great conversation. Uh, so any other like key points, uh, key influences uh, or, or, areas where like there's just specific examples of the the social change that this industry like had i guess provided the opportunity to to get past the the barriers of of society i don't know what i'm trying to say right now but you're you're picking up Uh, on putting down right
1: i think that um (laughs) one thing that's really fascinating to me when i spoke to two people who were really uh fantastic because they were actually organizers in the time So it was um, really kind of mind blowing to me to speak to a woman named Karen DeCrow, who was living in upstate New York when I spoke to her. And she had been the I'm going to say first, but it could be second president of the National Organization for Women. But she was one of the early ones for sure. And um, she had uh, this idea that it was really important. There were still some spaces in the United States at the time. And we're talking now like uh, the late 1960s. Where women were not allowed to come in and drink, so they were men's only bars. And um, uh, Karen DeCrow, she she was a lawyer, I think, or a law student at the time. But um, either way, she saw that bars were important places for women to get jobs and um, to make contacts, to network, to socialize. And that as long as women were being denied access to the bar, they were being denied access to equality. So um, she, the one of the very first things the National Organization for Women did was to campaign to end men's only bars. And there was a huge debate. Uh, they couldn't decide whether or not they would look foolish if the first thing the National Organization for Women did was to say, we got to fight for our right to party. Um, so they were very divided as to whether to do it, but they did go through with it and it was important. And the next step was to go on to the golf courses.
0: Awesome. Uh, I mean, I can't believe we're almost at an hour already And I, I kind of want to take one more break to thank our sponsors and we're going to come back and I want to talk about uh, basically the future. And uh, I think after COVID-19 and this uh, further, um, I guess uh, uh, we're moving in more of a direction away from the restaurant industry, as we know it, more people ordering out and all that. And a lot of people are afraid that the bar industry might not even survive COVID-19. So um, I know you have arguments against that. So I want to kind of pick up the conversation from there, but we're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. And you've been hearing me talk about Diageo Bar Academy on my podcast for some time now. Diageo Bar Academy is a totally free resource for bartenders, bar managers, and those in the hospitality industry. Today, I want to tell you about some of these amazing new e-learning courses they have available right now. And again, a reminder, Diageo Bar Academy is always free with tons of resources that help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So back to these courses, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day too. You'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every Time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant's more geared towards the booze, if you want to learn more about balancing flavors with spirits in food pairings, take the interactive course Spirits in Food Pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate the dining experience and help your check average. Diageo Bar Academy online courses offer real-life skills to help you grow in your career. They are always free, interactive, and each e-learning course takes less than 30 minutes and you receive a certificate upon completion, which you can view on your profile at any time. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O Academy. Dot com. Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no Personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with Play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's pretty great. Now, I've told you what's new with Played IQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with Played IQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies. With Bill Pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill, and this is all happening online, so no more paper checks. Played IQ Bill Pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check, A-C-H, or play IQ card. Also with Play IQ bill pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right, no more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about Play IQ insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare, spend, a buy item, vendor, time, period, and location man. I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, you get an alert. And then lastly, there's PlayIQ custom approval workflows. Only see the invoices you need to, no more duplications of efforts, and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com unstoppable. And when you use that link, save 25% off implementation. All right. We're back. And um, one of the things I want to talk about before we wrap up today's conversation is this idea that uh, the restaurant industry, the, the bar industry as we know it is kind of going away because we no longer need physical space to get our food. Uh, as an expert in prohibition, where obviously like that the same fear was kind of present then where the, this industry might no longer be what are your thoughts on that statement that with the, the the current direction we're headed that we may no longer need physical space to come together?
1: I think I really like the way that at the beginning you were talking about a pendulum and I do think that you that it has to come back. I I I would stake everything on this that there is no chance that bars don't survive covid. Um, and I don't. I know there are some people who will say like the same bars won't survive COVID, and I, unfortunately, that's true. And I think that that's awful. The bar that I worked at did not survive COVID, um, and uh, of, of course, we have this problem. And I think it's sad every single one of them that goes. But um, bar the bar industry itself has survived more plagues <laughs> than this one, more depressions, more you know, more economic problems. The bar made it through the Middle Ages, which was the darkest age in, um, you know, European history until like the turn of the 20th century or one of, you know, it it was, uh, we could fight about that. Probably somebody will take issue. It might not be the darkest age, but, um, you know, the bar has made it through so many wars, plagues, famines, prohibition when they were actually shut down. Some people would argue that the bars were even more prolific during prohibition They have a way of coming back. People want to be able to sit and drink together with people that aren't their family. And I don't think that's going away.
0: And there's never been a a bigger need for this. I feel like because of all the points we mentioned earlier with like, we, we've, we've gotten so efficient with getting things and we don't need to leave our own homes. But I think as we learn more about the human anatomy and we learn more about the brain and what makes us happy and what we need as humans, we're starting to realize that we need each other. And, uh, and that, that explains why there's so much depression, especially being forced to set to be, be separate during the, the pandemic. Like, we're starting to realize more than ever, clearer than ever, there's data to back it up that we need to bump up against each other. We need to, we need to physical touch. We need a conversation. Like there's chemicals that, that are released when this happens that are essential to our happiness, you know? And the more we learn about this, the more, and especially with people becoming more self-aware of just health in general and, yeah. and what we need, like it, we're constantly on this this journey of happiness and how do I feel better? uh, Not just like physically, but mentally and we're just like, we're just beginning to learn about what being next to each other does for our mental health. You know, and it's like this, this whole new, like unknown area of like exploration that we're just scraping the surface on, you know, and it's super exciting. So um, what, what's your reflection on what, after what I just shared? I,
1: I think that um, that, you know, I was just reminded when you mentioned, so there's one thing that I think that we don't pay enough attention to somebody, um, I was doing an article, I'm also a journalist, and I was doing a story about the the takeaway cocktail programs that people were kind of keeping themselves afloat with um, in Toronto, at the sort of beginning of the pandemic. And there was this one guy and he told me that what he was doing was he was um, doing a subscription and just every Friday you would get a random cocktail dropped off to you like you wouldn't know what it was. you were just going to try something new. And everybody reacted to that. And they said, yeah, yeah, because we're not surprised by anything anymore. Like we order the thing and we know exactly what our interaction is going to be. And the whole thing about being in public spaces um, is that you are going to get random things. Even if you go in and you're just ordering a Carlsberg every time. Um, there'll be something random that'll happen to you in terms of an interaction with somebody that you never would have expected to meet. And that, that thing that, um, that surprise, that element of surprise and randomness is something that bars can deliver in spades.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, What about this idea of society, generally speaking, moving in more of a healthy direction where, uh, you know, we're learning more and more about health in general, but we're also learning more and more about how, excessive drinking can be bad for our health. What are your, do you think that, that we're going to abandon alcohol altogether just because of, of that alone possibly?
1: Um, I, you know, it's possible. I would uh, put my money on the other side on that. I, I mean, I do think that it is, uh, I, I mean, I do think that alcohol is a lethal drug and I understand that. Um, on the other hand, I look at people who in Europe drink small amounts of sherry and aperitivos every day and think that there's there's another sort of model for us that we can drink less and be just as social. Um, I don't think we need to get rid of alcohol altogether. I, I think that in moderation that there are a lot of people who have proven over generations that it's not detrimental that it can, that you can take more out of alcohol than it takes out of you. Yes.
0: To- Drinking in excess to like daily drunkenness where you can't walk and you're just overdoing it. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also, like you're saying, there's a lot of evidence that suggests two glasses of wine a day or a couple of glasses of bourbon a day, or, uh, it's actually good for you. You know, there's a lot of, like health benefits to it. So I think it's a matter of finding that balance. And it's also good for people in, I think, connecting with each other who might have social uh inhibitions or social anxieties to, to have that glass of wine or that 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 bourbon. I think said Moses, the author of Pouring with Heart, is a perfect example of this. This is what he he kind of alluded to this in the book, where that was the one place he could go and feel like he was welcome in that even having a drink helped him loosen up a little bit and get that social um, engagement that he, he needed, you know? And I, I think if we see, like you mentioned earlier, at one point, uh, alcohol was seen as a medicine, right? I think to this day it still is seen. It can be looked at as a medicine if you're using it to, for the reasons I just explained to, to loosen up a little bit, some people say it's good for your heart because it it thins your, your blood. I don't know how much, how true that is. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. Don't quote me guys, but like, are, do you know anything about what I'm sharing? Um,
1: I, you know, it's, it's kind of a lateral thought, but, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, about three or four years ago, I started being um, my newspapers kind of health columnist, health and wellness columnist. So it's an odd kind of thing to do both alcohol and wellness stuff. But I'm always interviewing every week. I'm interviewing somebody who's really interesting, who's doing research on something. And the neuroscience guys, they'll all tell you, you know, those little puzzles that people do where they're, you know, testing things out. Um, You know, in order to to get your, uh, you know, like more your synapses working better and uh, to have more neuroplasticity. That's the word I'm looking for. Increasingly, neuroscientists believe that comes from human connection so that you can do all the puzzles you want. But the the reason that you should learn a language is because you can um, have more communication with a person from another culture. And that's what really gets things going in the brain. That's what helps your neuroplasticity. So many of the things that we have in our health and wellness culture that are about take this supplement or do this thing, the benefits really come from having conversations with people, I think. So I I just don't see that, I, I think that we would be far worse off if we didn't have um, you know, a, a, robust return for public drinking yeah. spaces,
0: you know, earlier in this conversation, when we started talking about the origin of, uh, you know, the agricultural revolution where people say farming is what brought people together. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder if it's, if it's because of say like fire, you know, they say that fire was the reason why we started, you know, cooking meat and then we were able to get a higher protein diet and we were, you were, using less energy to process the meat because you didn't have to chew it. And same thing with vegetables, like cooking things made it, you get more protein and you, you exert less energy. But I think there's a whole nother part of this too, is that before this point we were nomadic, we were moving and we were isolated bands of hunter gatherers. When you bring fire into the mix and you bring things like ovens into the mix, gathering places, you're forcing people from different tribes to come together and coexist and it's like what like to this day, if there's a fire outside, people gravitate towards it and it forces conversation and that forces the synapses and the, the, the mental like expansion. And I think that might have a lot to do with this just surge in cognitive evolution, cognitive power is this we're forced to talk to people and get perspective and you throw some weed in there and some mushrooms in there, some alcohol in there, you know, like you loosen up and like the sky's the limit. What's, what's going through your mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is absolutely right. I mean, I don't have, you know, I don't think all the research is in for this, but I think more and more we're moving towards a direction where we're understanding that our superpower as humans is working together.
0: Yes. And, and so, compounding off of generations of taking it to a certain point, saying they figured this out, let's take it from there. And that's one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate for open book management and sharing information and coming together. My mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. The way we're going to transform the industry is by sharing knowledge and coming together and recognizing we can go much further together. And that's one of the reasons why I brought you here today, because if we can transform the industry, we can transform the world. And that's kind of full circle we've been transforming the world as long as we've existed as an industry. And I think it's important that my listeners recognize the influence they have. And that's kind of sets us up for how I wanted to conclude today's conversation. What are some of the things that you've witnessed the restaurant industry changing today?
1: Um, I think that, that, uh, you know, you've seen, um, really conversations happening in restaurants that aren't happening in other industries. And I think when you brought up, you know, uh, trans, um, trans rights and acceptance there and fighting get back against transphobia, I think you have to see the restaurant industry as being a huge leader in that. And I think that, um, you know, I saw, I think that there have been a lot of people sort of working with the ideas around COVID and accessibility and addressing, Um, you know, who is the, the the fact that there are risks that are greater in restaurants than for other segments of society. And you're seeing that conversation being pushed forward, which is pushing equality. And then you see these massive projects, of course, by people like Jose Andres and, and other just phenomenal leaders in the industry who are um, showing that the, the way to heal the world is to try to address it through feeding the people who are in need. And I mean, those are obviously the, the most um, impressive things that you can see on sort of a large scale is responses to Ukraine, which are baking bread and responses to Puerto Rico's um, hurricane, which are feeding the people. Um, and it's not enough. Of course, we need to have, you know, a transformative change as well. But there's a part of the picture.
0: Yeah. And uh, what I would like to bring to the conversation um, is this idea of what's happening with just sustainability and culture, you know, uh, culture, um, climate change and how the food industry is really at the forefront of that. The if you look at the, the cause of, of climate change and unsustainable practices, 98% of the world pollution is from agriculture and food production. 98% that's crazy. You know, and we are in the business of food production. We are the, the, the middle point between the production and the end result consumer. If we change our values and our beliefs, the, the rest of the world kind of has to follow. You know, like we are we it hinges on us and our influence. Ninety eight percent of the world pollution comes from the food production industry. What can we start doing today? This is one example. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's crazy. And of all the food we produce, Christine, 50 percent of it gets thrown away. You right. know what I'm saying? Like, we I have don't. so much influence, you know, and, and if we're, if we're going to see change, whether it be sociopolitical or environmental recognize right now in this moment the influence you have over your community. You are the connection point between what what's, what's happening, what needs to change, and you can influence people. You can educate people. You can bring people together to share ideas of what a better future looks like. This is all happening in your restaurant. Be aware of it. Don't be blind of it and be a part of the change. Inspire, empower, transform the industry, and we will transform the world.
1: And I think that there are so many people in the food industry, in the restaurant industry who are way more like leaps and bounds ahead in terms of understanding the problems with climate change and sustainability. Um, And, and I also think it's a solution because people will um, believe that the thing that they should be doing is, um, you know, taking responsibility for their own food and bringing it into the house and cooking their own meals and cooking your own meals is very, very good for you. But The answer to climate change is probably going to come more likely from communal eating, because communal eating can be the least wasteful, um, both when it comes to resources, because you only have to fire up one oven instead of 50 in suburban homes. The plastic can go down. Everything can go down. I mean, there's a real answer that comes from restaurants and communal eating. That we haven't really um, dialed into yet, but I think it's going to be the way forward.
0: Yeah. And a big part of this too, is just um, people don't, we've we've destroyed the value of food over the past like 100 years when we it basically industrialized the food system and centralized it. Um, and, and part of that education is us explaining to consumers, Hey, like, guess what? This is going to be more expensive than $5 for a meal because $5 a meal is not sustainable and people are going to push back but we all we know is what we know and what we know is so far from what was, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's our, our job to educate people and say, Lick, like, like your money needs to stay in this community and the way it stays in this community is me charging you $20 for a burger because that's what it costs to do. Right. And it, and show them the math, you know, uh, but we have to do it together. We, we, I think we have to kind of like join arms and say like, if we're going to make this change, we have to all get on board because we need to make it normal, you know? And we 30% of the the average American's income went to food like a hundred years ago. It's like 9% now, you know, like it's values. It's just value based decision making. Like where, like, what does my decision, how does that influence others in this world we live in? Christine, this has been a lot of fun. Any final thoughts that haven't come out? Any things you want to get out uh, ideas or, or just anything now is the time to get it out.
1: Um, I think that, you know, it's all sort of it comes together and, it you know, we, we can see that there are answers that come from, you know, eating together and drinking together. There are solutions for individuals, you know, and I think that um, it will make us healthier and happier in terms of like, our, you know, where everyone's worried about mental health. But I think if we can kind of imagine that there is something to. I don't want to get in too much into like being an evolutionary biologist because I think there's lots of problems with that. But I think we were kind of meant to eat together, to drink together, to be together. And the reason that you feel better after you do it is because it's, it's the thing that we were meant to be doing. And I think that um, it's really the only way forward. We certainly can't just um, have meals in our house delivered to us by Uber Eats and um, go back to watching something on Netflix. You know, we have to to try to be better than that. Yeah.
0: Christine, thank you so much for making time for us to, uh, to dive into some of the details of your book and the history of this industry and how it's influenced society as long back as it, as it, as it has existed. Um, I've really enjoyed this. How can we connect with you? How can we find the book? Where should we go?
1: Um, I, I think that uh, the book is available at all major sort of Amazon type um, you know resources, things along those lines. Um, I have a, a new book coming out, which I'd love to plug. Which yeah. Is called give us some Cocktails information. In still life. It's coming in August.
0: See it one it's, more time. I spoke over you. I want to make sure the listeners hear.
1: It's called Cocktails of Still Life. I'm the writer and um, they're, well, there are two writers, sorry, but um, there's also, there's this uh, wildly um, talented still life artist who uh, draws pictures or paints pictures of paintings. Um, anyhow, those are both available on Amazon and I, um, I think you can find them at uh, good bookstores as
0: well. Beautiful. And, uh, it's, it's a tradition here at restaurant unstoppable. I like to find my future guests by having my current guests call somebody out. So who do you respect and admire? Uh, maybe it's a restaurant owner, maybe it's a bar owner. You also mentioned that one book that I'm interested in earlier. You said you're going to email me the title of the book. Uh, Who do you respect and believe would make a, a, a great guest like you made for us today?
1: I think that um, the book that I mentioned earlier, which is a drunk and I, I this the uh, subtitle, I can't remember, but it's something along the lines, of how we stumbled our way into civilization by Ed- Edward Slingerlands would be a really uh, great person to speak to.
0: I just found it right here. It's drunk, how we, sl- how we sipped, dance and stumbled our way into civilization. Uh, look out, Edward, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And I can't say it enough. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. There is no questioning. You are. Unstoppable. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value in today's chat and a special thanks to our guest Christine Sismondo for diving into the history of taverns and bars and their significance to the formation of society as we know it. And if you're not feeling inspired after that episode, I don't know what to do. Uh, That's what we're here to do is to inspire you to see your your, your restaurant differently, to let you know you do have influence, you do have impact, and we can change the world with the restaurant industry. I, I wholeheartedly believe that if we transform the restaurant industry, we transform the world and we are in a unique place of influence. We can change our communities. If we can each change our communities, that will bleed over to changing the world. I know I sound like a crazy person when I talk about this, but I I believe it and I I need you to believe it too. And that's my role here is to influence you to, you know, see the bigger picture and to, to make an impact. So I think we did that today. I think we accomplished that today. And I'm really excited to have more conversations like this. Uh, I I'm going to be reaching out to Edward Slingerland, the author of drunk. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really interested in this idea of, taking a more anthropological standpoint in my work where we dive into the history of us, why we are the way we are. I mean, this whole industry business in general is about relationships. The more you understand people and how they are and why they are the way they are, the better you understand them, the better you're going to be able to understand your people and manage your relationships. That's my theory at least. And we are in the business of selling alcohol and things that make you see the world differently. I think this would be a really interesting conversation and I would love to get your feedback. If you think that I'm swinging and missing the mark on this one, let me know. If you think that this would be fascinating content. Also let me know, email me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, and let me know what you think. Uh, I also want to let you know and remind you that we are doing a whole series of content right now around onboarding a restaurant operator to a enterprise solution. So if you want to be a part of that conversation and see if this might be the right move for you in your restaurant, come hang out with us every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern time. I'd love to have you be a part of the conversation. All right. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.